when I look around and I see what's happening with things like AI or I look at what's happening you know, in other parts of the economy, I'm seeing a, an increased demand for electricity service, for electricity load. And to be a part of that changing environment was just a, an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. We're excited to have a very special guest on today's episode. EEI President and CEO Dan Briette began his new role on January 1st, and it's our pleasure to have him here today to discuss policy priorities for the electric power industry in 2024, how the industry will balance the growing demand for clean energy with reliability expectations, opportunities and challenges facing the industry, and more. Dan has deep experience in both the public and private sectors. He served as the 15th U.S. Secretary of Energy and has a proven track record of collaboration across political lines. Dan, I'm excited to be working with you to help America's electric companies get as clean as they can as fast as they can, and to help them continue prioritizing affordability and reliability. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. Let's start by having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Most people know that you served as Energy Secretary, but how did your career get started? Well, Brian, it actually got started in the field. Uh, I was born and raised in the southern part of Louisiana. My family is a family of tradesmen, blue-collar folks, if you will, electricians, plumbers, welders. And I learned at a very early age how to weld. And one of my earliest jobs in the energy field was as a pipeline welder, working pipelines all along that I-10 corridor that runs from New Orleans all the way over to Houston. Fantastic opportunity for me. Really gave me a sense of the energy industry from the ground up. And you've had an impressive career, and we're, again, thrilled to have you here with us to bring your energy and policy expertise to EEI. What is it about helping lead the electric power industry that drew you to the role, and what opportunities do you think electric companies have today to advance the efforts to deliver power that's clean, reliable, and affordable for customers? Well, I'd like to think that I've always recognized the importance of the of the power companies and the importance of electricity to our overall energy portfolio. My uncle, who lived uh, right next door to us, frankly, and uh, sometimes right down the street, was a lineman for what was known then as Louisiana Power and Light. And I was always fascinated by the job that he had. And... Uh, it went well beyond him just bringing the bucket truck home and allowing me and my brother to go up and down in the yard. I was always fascinated by the interconnectivity of the power company to the other parts of the energy sector. I learned that as well as, as a pipeline uh, person, you know, seeing in the field what it takes to weld, what it takes to get power to these compressors, what it takes to get uh, the gas where it needed to go at the time. It was always, uh, you know, an interesting point for me. And I think what drew me here to EEI was that, you know, over that 35 years or so that's, you know, elapsed from those early days in the field, the industry has changed quite dramatically. When I look around and I see what's happening with things like AI or I look at what's happening, you know, in other parts of the economy, I'm seeing a, an increased demand for electricity service, for electricity load. And to be a part of that changing environment was just a, an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And going to energy policies, what are some of the biggest policy priorities the industry will focus on this year, uh, knowing we kind of just came off our, our board meeting to start off the new year? And what challenges may the industry need to overcome when it comes to policy? Because as everyone knows, it's an election year and really getting anything over the finish line always takes a lot of work. 
Sure, there's no question about that, Brian. It, you know, as we've heard from some of our speakers here at EI and other places, there's never really a good time to start a legislative effort. It's either a brand new Congress and folks don't know your issues, so you have to take time to educate them, or in the case of the U.S. House of Representatives, you have an election in the second year of their first term, and it's a campaign year, so it's never a good time to start then. So we tend to set that aside. Uh, and when we look at things like policy, I think it's becoming more and more apparent to them in Congress, to state regulators or state legislators as well, that we need to improve our transmission capacity. We need to improve our infrastructure here in the United States in order to meet that load and that demand that we all know is coming, either through AI or, I dare say, from other industries. I can speak from my experiences at Semper Infrastructure, for instance. There is a an increasing desire to change, for instance, the compressors or the, the equipment that you use to liquefy natural gas from utilizing natural gas to perhaps putting in electric drives. Those are enormous amounts of load that are going to come on to the, to the grid as well. And I think that is going to be one of the priorities for EEI as well as for the industry itself. So both AI data centers, but a lot of just the manufacturing and industrial too. Exactly correct. Yeah. And energy security, of course, is vitally important. And there are many facets to energy security. And I'm obviously as energy secretary in your experience with national security, there are a lot of facets. But thinking about what we do here, how important to the equation are the strategic investments that enhance energy grid resilience? I don't think energy security has ever been more important, frankly. You know, if we think back on American history, we obviously had some defining moments, you know, World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War. Those things were all true, and I'm not trying to in any way diminish, you know, what those leaders faced at the time. But our adversary has changed quite dramatically in the last 30 years. So uh, while China may not have been an adversary 30 years ago, as we watch them develop from a, a developing country to a more developed country. They are an adversary today, and that's something that we have to take very seriously. They're not only capable from a military sense or from a cybersecurity sense, they're very capable from an economic and trade sense. It's just a much different world in which we, we face. As we think about the Cold War, for instance, you know, during the Reagan era when I was in the Army, uh, Russia was a different adversary at that point in time. We knew then that Russia did not present an economic threat the way perhaps China does or other countries may today. And one of the larger targets, one of the more important targets that all of them look at is our critical infrastructure. And that means our energy infrastructure. So I, I think our industry has done a great job of securing those assets. There is still plenty of work to be done, however. And what role do regulators and policymakers have in ensuring a good outcome? Well, I, I think it's diverse. It depends on where you are, if you're a state regulator or a federal regulator, or if you're a, a national security type, or if you're just a, a pure economic regulator. There are different roles that the regulators play. I think all of them agree, however, on the critical importance of the infrastructure to the economy. So whether you're an economic regulator or a consumer-focused regulator uh, at one level, be it a state level or a federal level, or you're coming at this from a, uh, a standards uh, viewpoint, you know, what are the cyber standards that we should think about for the industry, you can pretty much well agree that our enemy has changed, our adversary has changed, and the threat has become larger, not smaller. And for our sector, and really probably for a lot of sectors, whenever a major incident occurs, obviously there's the response and recovery, but there's usually after actions and, and efforts to take the lessons learned and apply them to future decision making, whether that's processes or whether that's the types of investments that might be able to mitigate future impacts. In communities and in states that haven't encountered some of these challenges, and they may be perhaps there's a little bit of that can't happen here mentality, it seems like we really should be doing a little bit more collectively to be taking these lessons learned and identifying 
identifying opportunities to make prudent investments in resilience because we are more dependent than ever before on on internet for Wi-Fi for cell phone service, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's in the workplace or even working from home scenarios. It does seem like there are opportunities to make investments now that would help enhance resilience, mitigate impacts down the road. I agree with you completely, Brian. A lot of our companies have been on the front line of those types of restoration and recovery efforts. We're seeing that today as we speak and, and conduct this podcast over on the West Coast in Oregon. As I think about it, though, I'll go back to what I said earlier. The lessons that we learn are that while the goals may be different, there are some who would argue that we need to develop the grid in order to integrate more and more renewable power. I believe that. That's true. So I think what we'll see, Brian, is a different approach in each one of the states because each one of the states has unique assets that they bring to the to the table or to the energy portfolio, I should say. Some are going to be very strong uh, in solar, just given the geography or the proximity that, you know, the, the land that they occupy. Some are going to be very strong in wind. Some are going to be very strong in others. What we understand, though, is because we face a world in which people are going to rely more and more upon electricity, for a number of different reasons. Either they work in a remote environment in a post-pandemic workforce, or we're trying to meet important environmental goals, be they attached to a 2030 goal or a 2050 goal. It doesn't matter why you're doing it. What we understand today, perhaps more so than we have in recent past, is that we all have an interest in the investments that we have to make in the transmission grid, in the investments that we need to make with generation. And bringing these assets to bear on things like reliability and resilience are going to be more and more important. On that, I think we're going to find broad agreement in all of the 50 states. And I would dare say that we're going to find broad agreement at the federal level as well. And you had mentioned earlier that you previously were with Semper Infrastructure and you had served as president prior to joining us here at EEI. So between that and serving as energy secretary, as well as some of your other leadership roles in the private sector, what lessons did you learn from those roles? And how do you plan to carry that over to what we do here at EEI, as well as what we work with our member companies to do for the whole sector? I think the most important lesson I learned was that it will take all of the energy sources that we currently have to meet the demand that's coming. Uh, I don't think that that's debatable any longer. Now, does that mean that we should not pursue uh, more aggressively renewable technologies? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It just simply means that we're going to need natural gas for quite a long time in order to meet that baseload demand that we all see it is there today and will come tomorrow. Uh, that was probably the most important lesson that I learned, that it will take everything that we have and everything that we know how to create today to meet that demand. And throughout your career, you've been effective at working across the aisle. And having been confirmed as energy secretary by a vote of 70 to 15 really is quite extraordinary. Why has it been important for you to work on a bipartisan basis? And do you see that as key to advancing industry goals and goals we have with our customers? Yeah, it's absolutely key. I don't think it happens without it, to be honest. Uh, or if it does happen, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the sustainability that you would want it to have for the industry. One of the things I learned as president of Semper Infrastructure is that the amount of money that these companies invest on a daily basis, the, the capital expenditures, if you will, is enormous. And to the extent that you can provide at least some level of certainty for those investments, it's just very important that we do so. So in order for us to sustain a policy apparatus or a policy environment that is sustainable, it's going to be bipartisan. We don't want that whipsaw effect that occurs in certain countries around the world. To the extent we can avoid it here in the United States, we should. And it's something that I learned very early on as a young Hill staffer. Uh, I worked on both sides of the aisle. I understood keenly what it took to get a deal on both sides of the aisle, if you will, or to get agreements on both sides of the aisle. And I've taken that to every job that I've had, uh, be it Ford Motor Company, be it USAA, be it as Deputy Secretary of Energy or as Energy Secretary. 
EEI and our member companies always are laser focused on how policies impact our customers. So you had just mentioned uh, USAA and Ford as well. What have you learned about meeting the needs and expectation of customers based on some of those roles that were more a little bit more direct customer facing? I think you know what I learned early on in, in places like Ford Motor Company. I was at Ford when it was a very difficult economic environment. Uh, Bill Ford was the CEO at the time, and you know Ford has had a lot of different brand shifts over the years, meaning you know different slogans that they use. Well, one thing that always stayed at Ford Motor Company and I think still exists to this day is that quality is job one. So make the product the best that you can possibly make it. Serve your customer that way. Uh, And that adds to all sorts of things, retention, repeat sales, whatever. But it was very important. And that was reinforced when I went to USAA. Uh, USAA, for those who might not be familiar, is a a member-owned company. It's an association, if you will, of military families and veterans and active duty uh, service members. They take very seriously their service to that community because they understand uh, what it's like to be deployed and, and be a spouse back home with no 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 real way to communicate with your 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 spouse or your your loved one you may be deployed at the foreign edge of you know some combat zone so they bend over backwards to take care of that spouse or that service member whenever they need them and it was just you know it was something that was kind of important to me personally having worn the uniform having been out there um and I, I took that to heart. And what I see in the utility business is much the same thing. Uh, you know, the CEOs wake up every single morning and they feel like their first obligation is service to the public. That's what we do. We keep the lights on. We keep the heat on. We keep the, the AC on in the summertime when it's really hot. Um, I think that's important for us to continue doing. And I, I don't think that there's any other industry, frankly, that does it better than the power companies. And being a DC-based association, we're often involved with these sort of discussions with policymakers, whether it's on Capitol Hill or at the various federal agencies. But for our sector, many of the decisions affecting electric companies and the energy grid are really made at the local and state level. How important are stable and supportive state policies to our collective efforts to build and enhance a resilient energy grid? Obviously, we're DC-based. A lot of work happens here. But quite a bit of this really happens in the states. It really does. And I I think we touched upon it earlier. I mean, these are enormous investments that the power companies are making in the grid, uh, in the generation facilities that they're building. In order for us to do that effectively, in order for us to do that over a sustained period of time, it's important that the regulatory environment in which the decisions are made are certain that we know what it's going to be. I certainly, you know, think that Wall Street wants to see that level of stability because they're the ones in many cases who are partners with the power companies to do these types of investments. And I can speak from, you know, my experience at Sempra, you know, we developed an LNG export facility that's a very large facility, upwards of $10 billion of investment and capital needed to get that thing going to reach a final investment decision. Understanding the regulatory environment in which we were going to make those decisions and operate the facility over a 20-year period was very, very important. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So to the extent that we can educate policymakers, we can educate legislators or regulators as to the importance of that fundamental fact, I think EEI is going to be well positioned to provide value to our members. And knowing that every state really is rather unique where they might have access to different resources, they might face different challenges, as we really dial in our focus on things we can be doing to make the energy grid more resilient and more ready for future technologies, is that going to look a little different everywhere? And I'm thinking you, you said you grew up in Louisiana, so you've seen your share of hurricanes and everything else. Um, resilience really is going to be hyper-local, but everywhere really needs to be thinking a little bit more about this. There's no question about that. Um, it will be unique to the area in which you're serving. So, uh, you know, we're working very closely with uh, our vice chair currently, Maria Pope, 
football and a wildfire issue. Very important to those you know companies that are facing uh, that sort of threat, if you will, in the West. Uh, it's not as isolated, if you will, to the West any longer. There are fires in other parts of the country, so we have to address that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the wildfire uh, issue looks the same for a power company or for the public in, say, a West Virginia that it might in California or Oregon or Idaho or someplace where, you know, just frankly, the geography is different. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that. It does, however, you know, point to the larger issue of resilience. And that is, I think, where we can find a lot of common ground with state legislators. Customers in particular want their power and they want it to stay on uh, all the time, 24-7, especially in a post-pandemic world in which we've moved a lot of the workplace to remote environments. The Wi-Fi needs to work 24-7 or else people can't work. And that resilience, that reliability, those are the foundations upon which I think we can find a lot of policy agreement at the state level, even though the individual approaches may be slightly different. When you were selected as EI's next leader, you said EI is a preeminent voice helping to guide the nation's energy policy, and I believe the leadership role it performs has never been more important than it is today. Why is this such an important moment in time? We touched upon it briefly. I think from my experience in the Army back in the 80s and you know, somewhat in the early 90s, uh, the, the, the adversary that we faced then, the world that we faced then, was just fundamentally different. Today we face an adversary that's going to require us to, to be more and more cautious about our electricity grid more and more cautious about our pipeline grid, more and more cautious about our critical energy infrastructure across the board. So that's important to understand. Uh, As the economy becomes more and more clean, as the economy moves to a decarbonized state, electricity becomes more and more important in that world as well. So that's why I think, you know, EEI is just so well positioned to help lead not only that conversation, but the action that's going to be required to provide that for the American public and for our international members for the world at large. And all of us here at EEI are excited for this new chapter, and we look fondly back at the more than 30 years that Tom Kuhn spent leading the association, knowing that you had joined EEI at the start of October as president and CEO-elect. Is there anything you would like to say about Tom or anything you learned from him during your time as president and CEO-elect this past fall? Well, Tom was no question just an, an incredible leader. I've told the story to EI employees. I'll say it again, you know, for our audience here. Uh, one of the very first people I met in Washington, D.C. when I came here after leaving the Army was Tom Kuhn. Uh, he came into the congressional office in which I was working. And uh, at the time, I didn't know what a lobbyist was. And I frankly didn't know much about what Congress was doing. But Tom was one of those people who immediately uh, came in and took control of, of the room. And he presented himself and the organization in such a positive light. I was just struck by that. And I have watched his career for 30 years. And, um, you know, as I mentioned before, it's a bit surreal for me to be here 30 years later succeeding him at EEI. But he has shown an ability not only to work with Congress and state legislators, but CEOs of our industry. And uh, I learned early on that they saw him as a peer. And that was, you know, that was very, very impressive. There are not many trade association CEOs in Washington, D.C. that can count on those types of relationships and would be seen, frankly, uh, by their industry as a peer. And Tom was. And uh, I hope to, to, to measure up a little bit to that. Thank you for spending some time with us today. And I, I doubt it's the last time we'll have you join us. Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.